Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In today's world, people feel lost in a sea of ideas. Which ones should we accept? Stay tuned because you're listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Here is your host, Kurt Jarris. Well, a good day to you, and thanks for joining us here for another episode of Veracity Hill, where we are striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. This is episode 185. We're calling it Why I Still Believe, and our guest today uh, is a special guest, someone who's been a co-laborer in the apologetics community for many years. Uh, But before we introduce her formally and have her join in on our uh, conversation today, I do want to say there was a small error in the uh, introductory uh, audio material um, really, th- this week, you know, we, we we've used the the same stuff uh, over and over, um, but the one error has become an error, if you will. Okay. And uh, you know, it, the gal that does the voiceover, she says, "Here is your host, right, Kurt Jarris." Right. You know, oh, so that's true. That's who you are. Right. Yeah. 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 But usually, when folks have podcasts or something like this, they you know, especially if they have a terminal degree. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, Dr. So-and-so. Okay. Yes. So, on Thursday, uh, I was in Scotland and uh, passed my uh, my Viva, my oral defense. And so, I have uh, received my union card. I've joined the club of people with PhDs. Hey. Uh, yes. So, I'm finally done. And actually... Oh, you have it. Dip out of screen here. Okay. Here's the printed... <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> So this is um, actually, so I couldn't print it double-sided according to their rules and regulations. Right. So this is, it's bound here. And it's a big whopping. That's your work. Yeah, I spent five years working on it. That's Um, pretty impressive. Yes. You don't want to see the list of grammatical mistakes. Oh, boy. (laughs) So when, so there are a few options that could come out of a viva. You can pass with no corrections. That is extremely rare. Uh, Sometimes people, um, uh, Professors will only see maybe one of those their entire career. Um, the most common is a pass with minor corrections. Uh, then you could pass with major corrections. Sometimes whole sections need reworking, that sort of thing. Um, or you could um, not pass and uh, they, they give you another chance. Or you could completely fail and they give you an MPhil. So those are different options. So mine was passed with minor corrections and they are all strictly grammatical, spelling, hmm. formatting. I missed a couple spaces, that sort of thing. So, uh, But nice to have those extra set of eyes. Um, but it was a grilling of uh, a couple hours uh, with uh, two fellows, uh, Augustine Cassidy, who has actually been a guest on our yes, program a while him. ago. He was on our show. Um, and then Andrew McGowan, hmm. um, up at, who's a... Uh, uh, up at uh, Highland Theological College. He's an, what's called an internal examiner. We have a street sweeper going by. Yay. Um, st- that's the sound of a street sweeper, but it's snowing, so I'm confused. Uh, as many longtime guests know, we're here at our op- the Defenders Media office in downtown West Chicago. We have all sorts of sounds and noises, like when Mark forgets to turn the volume down on his cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, yeah, that was you. I was trying to share the... Thing. Yes, no worries. No worries, Mark. Sorry, okay. okay. So, uh, we, uh, we, yes, we'll work on changing that intro, actually. I think uh, we might, well, Chris and I have talked about maybe having a, a rebrand of sorts anyway, so maybe it'll come time for that. All right, so very excited uh, to be here today, back in the saddle. Uh, it's been a couple weeks, actually, since I've been coming to you live. Uh, we were down in New Orleans, and we had a couple interviews, uh, but being back in the office, there's something nice about it, getting back to things. Uh, so, um, for those that are wondering if 
they should call me Dr. Jarrus. Uh, I have a couple different options here uh, that I've got loaded. Chris, could you put those up on the screen? So Jarrus is kind of hard to say. Some people don't know how to say it. Uh, and our guest is kind of smiling because she ag- agrees. She's one of those folks like, how, how do you say your last name? Um, so there we've got a picture that is Dr. J himself, Julius Irving of the Philadelphia 76ers, a famous uh, professional basketball player, Hall of Famer, Dr. J. So that could work. If you don't know how to say Jairus, just Dr. J. Um, also, here's another fun one. If you just wanted to say Doc, you know, Doc Brown from uh, Back to the Future, great movie. Uh, just call him Doc. You know, call, you could call me Doc. Uh, so that would be uh, a nice little nickname. So uh, you have Doc or you have Dr. J if you're ever worried about uh, which one to refer to me as. So easy, nice and easy. Okay, I just wanted to say that. That was also one of my like tertiary reasons for getting a terminal degree. So people don't have to <laughs> call me by my last name. <laughs> All right, well, what's been happening in the United States over the past few years is that people are buying into these uh, deconversion stories, testimonies, and experiences. Uh People are, for some reason, impressed with people when they announce that they've left the faith that their parents raised them, and they've now become an atheist or something else. You know, there's a lot of positivity sent that way. Oh, good for you! Isn't that nice? Uh, and uh, this, however, um, uh, is—I don't think there's much much merit to that. Although it's certainly a joy when Christians hear of people deconverting to join. Uh, you know deconverting from some other worldview into Christian uh, faith. Um, It's always nice to hear that. Uh, But is there um, much merit to uh, the the story themselves? Well, there's a functional use to the story. Uh, Stories are persuasive. They're inspiring. Um, But also, the story should be backed up with good sound reasoning. So what our guest uh, today has done is she's put together... um, uh, a story about her journey um, and uh, the the facts that support that journey, and so she's written a, a, a testament of faithfulness, intellectual faithfulness to the Christian worldview. The the work is called "Why I Still Believe" by Mary Jo Sharp. She is a former atheist turned international speaker in apologetics. She works as assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University, and she's the founder director of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. She. She has graced the cover of Christianity Today, along with some other uh, women, uh, the title of that cover story, The Unexpected Defenders. She lives with her husband, Roger, uh, and her family in Portland, Oregon. Mary Jo, or as your friends call you, MJ, thanks for joining us on our program today. Hey, Kurt, it's so good to be on with you today. <laughs> yes, I hope that wasn't too uh, too much of a long-winded uh, introduction. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and I congratulations. I'm so excited for you to be at the end of that long journey of a PhD. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, it's a multi-year project, many long hours, um, and glad that it's it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so uh, to start off, um, if you could uh, give our uh, followers, our listeners, a brief background about um, your journey uh, from atheism and uh, bringing you over to the Christian worldview. Yeah, thank you for asking me that. I um, So I, you know, I was, part of my story is that I was raised outside of the Christian faith, and I wasn't raised by parents who were like adamant atheists, so I didn't even really know I was atheist, because I never really even heard that term until I got involved with apologetics and with reasoning my belief. But I was raised in the Pacific Northwest, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and outside of church, and in a culture that was really post-Christian or somewhat post-Christian. So as opposed to where I spent last about 25 years of my life in the southern United States where, you know, people call it the Bible Belt because there's a lot of cultural Christianity down there. Um, I was raised in a very different type of culture uh, where Christianity, you don't have that sense of cultural Christianity. In fact, what I really knew about Christianity was what I saw in television and the movies growing up. So my view about uh, Christianity in general was pretty shallow. But what I did experience was that I was raised by parents who loved the outdoors, who loved um, science. My dad loved cosmology, who's a huge Carl Sagan fan. And both my parents loved the arts. So my dad was a saxophone player, like I became a saxophone player. So we were both involved in music. 
And one of the things that I saw growing up was the, the great beauty that was surrounding me. And, you know, not just here on planet Earth, but out looking at the stars and also the great beauty that humans were achieving through the arts. And I really felt like these areas had profoundly impacted me growing up, so much so that I believe that these, just seeing the great beauty in the world and wondering at what this, all this was for was really drawing me to search for the meaning behind it. And um, I had, at that time, I was an older high school student, and I had a high school band director who I greatly respected, who was a Christian. And he took a risk, of, he was burdened for me, so he took this risk of sharing, giving me a Bible, so sharing his faith with me my senior year of high school, he said, hey, Mary Jo, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. And so he, he gave me a Bible. And I wasn't really sure what I'd find in there, but I, I knew I was searching. I knew I respected him. And so I began to read that Bible. And in there, I found the source of all that beauty and, and the intelligence that was behind it all. I found the artist behind it. So in college, I began to look uh, for church, <laughs> I began to go to church. I'm the opposite of what we always hear. The statistics: your kids are going to go off to college and lose their faith. And <laughs> there's this, this person who's not a believer in God going off to college to investigate it. And uh, I did find eventually a church where I heard a clear explanation of the good news of the Savior for mankind. And I was very excited to discover that all these pieces I had been looking at finally came together. That's when I trusted Jesus as my Savior. So my, my path was through many different avenues, but a lot of it had to do with the great beauty um, I saw in the world and the wonder at what, were, what was this all for. Mm. Uh, you uh, talked there about sort of your, your transition from um, atheism uh, and then even going into a, a church for the first time. Uh, what were some of the personal questions that you struggled with, right? Your band uh, teacher said you're going to have these questions here. So what, if you could share with us some of those questions. Yeah, I think they all go back basically to my trying to understand what life was for because I was deeply impacted by profound beauty and power that I saw in nature. I, I grew up during the time when St. Helens erupted here up in the Northwest and so that, that raw power. I, I just wondered, is this all there is? We, we live and die and there's nothing else to it. And I couldn't reconcile that with my experience of having these transcendent moments in performing music and especially in high school I was in a particularly good high school concert band and so we created such beauty that I couldn't figure out the meaning behind it what is this pointing us to is this all for nothing and uh, I have one sort of not so high and lofty moment which is when my high school boyfriend who I kind of thought I might end up with <laughs> He, you know, marriage or at least long-term relationship when he broke up with me. And I remember thinking, I'm upset and I'm crying, but what does it matter? Mm. I couldn't figure out why it mattered and why I mattered. So it was that question of meaning and purpose and value in the universe. You know, what? who am I in this vast, indifferent universe on this pale blue dot? I couldn't mm. figure that out. Those are the kinds of questions I was that, you know, they weren't formed that well in a teenage mind, but that's what was running around up there. Now, for many people, um, receiving a Bible is not very convincing for them to crack it open and, and find the answers that to, to the questions that they're seeking. For you, where did you learn about the answers you were looking for? Was it from reading the Bible or was it from hearing an evangelist? Uh, how did you get that information you were looking for? Yeah, mine really started with just reading the Bible, and I really did, um, I had read some Greek mythology growing up, I really liked Greek mythology, I thought it was totally awesome, so as I'm reading the Bible, I'm noticing it's very different, uh, Luke especially hit me hard with his historical quality to his writing, his biographical quality, uh, so I, when I started reading that, it, it just hit me hard because I wasn't expecting it to be like that. Actually, I didn't know what I was thinking I was going to find in there. But when I saw the attention to detail, when I saw that it sounded like a report, when I, and then when I saw behind the teachings, like Jesus saying, uh, you know, do unto others as you want others to do unto you. Do, you know, don't just do, don't return what people are doing. It all made sense to me. This is where goodness is coming from. This is where justice is coming from. 
So what happened as I was reading the teachings in the Bible is they were making sense of my my desire for justice, my desire for uh, goodness and evil in the world, but there were actually real things. It actually made sense of it and started grounding those ideas that I held but had no grounding for. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what really pressed me on was reading the Bible. It wasn't till later when I heard a gospel presentation of how does Jesus fit into all this? What is he doing? And why does that matter to me? That I actually began to say, oh, okay, this makes sense to me. Yeah. Now, um, you heard the gospel message for the first time, or, or uh, afresh, heard it clearly uh, in that church setting. But um, what, what, is, what was it like um, entering a church building before becoming a Christian? I mean, that's not the experience of many Christians. Many folks are just raised as a Christian, so they're going to church as a young one. Um, or maybe they'll become a Christian, then go to church. What was it like not having that clear view and yet still going into a church building? I think there were two different things going on in my mind. One was that I was sort of excited to find the people who were searching for the same thing I was searching for. It's like, oh, here's a group of people I'm about to encounter who are looking for goodness, truth, and beauty in the world. They're actually searching for these things. And so I was excited. But I also was going into an environment that was completely foreign to me. And so I felt like the new kid in class, you know, that I, <laughs> I hope people will like me. I have no idea what I'm doing, and this is a new situation for me. So there's that awkwardness and nervousness of not knowing. I mean, I really did not know how to act, what to wear, any of that, um, going into a Southern Evangelical church. So there was the awkwardness as well. Did your garb raise any eyebrows when you uh, went? <laughs> That was actually, um, there's a story in my book about this, and that was actually after I had accepted Jesus. It's like the day I'm going to church the first time as a new believer, and I'm going to profess my acceptance of Jesus before this whole church. And I have two dresses at this time because I'm a poor college student (laughs) and undergrad. And so I picked, you know, I asked my, I was married, and I asked my husband, which which one of these is best? And he said, oh, that one. I, I put it on. We go to church, get there. We're walking into the sanctuary, and the the pastor's wife is standing at the door of the sanctuary, and she's greeting everybody as they're coming in. She looks at me, and I'm smiling, and I'm you know awkward, nervous, <laughs> and she says to me, "Oh, honey, we need to find you better clothes." <laughs> yeah, that's my first experience as a new believer in the church. Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> A little shocked, a little disappointed, a little upset. So they <laughs> didn't turn you away, though, did they? No, no. Yeah. Uh, I, come on in, but we got to get you better clothes. Yeah, and my right, husband, right. growing up in a small town in a, a small church in this denomination, he was like, oh, oh, yeah, let's just, I'll take care of it. We're good. Move us along. Yep, yep. Um, so you write that you had been looking for a life-changing, Christ-focused community, a church family with real accountability to a transcendent and objective good that they pursued as actually true, um, and yet it was nowhere to be found. You perhaps didn't come across um, <laughs> my, my church, which does all of that uh, in, in Wheaton, <laughs> Illinois, Faith Covenant Church. Um, but uh, so um, how did that impact your um your young, immature, childlike faith. Yeah, I think that was very detrimental to my childlike faith. And I do, I love that you pointed out that your church was uh, like that. I I do want to make sure that people who are listening know that this is not a condemnation on all churches. It's my own experience. Mm. I hadn't hadn't encountered this. And as, as you read that out loud, I was like, Every time I read that, I'm thinking of how naive I was going into the church. You know, I'm looking for this church family with real accountability, transcendent, objective, good. <laughs> I'm such an I'm an idealist, and I'm like, there it is. I'm yeah. such an idealist. But um, but yeah, it, I mean, to be fair, that is a good. You want people to be authentic, and there are churches where it just feels dry or forced. Um, I mean, I've I've been uh, a uh, a recurring, uh, not a formal member, but I've I've been a participant um, to friend to churches like that, and so you know you just you do want to find that authentic Christian community, 
Um, yeah. So it's a valid yeah. concern. Yeah. And since the question was like, you know what, how did that impact my young yeah. faith? Well, I was just really heartbroken that what I was longing for, I didn't find in mm. the church. And it, it, it took a while for me to begin to realize that although people said they believed in God, and um, I wasn't gonna, always going to find people who acted like that was true. Mm. Like they actually lived it out in their lives or what that meant. It took a while for me to figure that out. And I saw people who were concerned with so many things that didn't seem important to me, um, like the, <laughs> the color of the church carpet, the, you know, whether we're going to have pews or chairs in the church or you know, what people were wearing who were brand new believers, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, those people not holding, they were the same people who weren't holding themselves to really grow in their knowledge of God yeah. or in their relationship with God. Mm. Yes. So these these are the things that I started to see that over time caused me to, um, I, I say that my faith in people kind of flatlined and that my belief in God, my faith in God needed resuscitation because mm. just all these experiences of people over and over not caring, I guess, about, you could say, the right things um, really just harmed my faith in God. Mm. Um, now, you have been working in the apologetics uh, enterprise, as I call it, uh, for uh, a number of years, I think longer than I have been, um, but for both of us, apologetics has played uh, a role um, in um, certainly our ministry work in our lives. Tell me about your journey into uh, discovering apologetics and what, what really got you interested in it. Yeah, that so that picks up on the end of my uh, story about how I came to know Christ. So I come into the church and I have these expectations, some of which are naive, even if they are uh, good goals, right? Um, I come into the church and I have these experiences, which over time begin to cause me some doubt about what I put my faith in and what I trusted in. So I started to say to myself, wait a minute, these hurtful experiences cannot be the litmus test for whether or not Christianity is true. And it took me a while to get to that point. So I began to think, well, I need to figure out why I think I believe in God, or do I even want to believe in God at this point? There was some desire and emotion playing into this. But I thought, I I really need to figure out what I believe and why I believe it. So I started realizing I didn't have answers to questions like, does God exist? And how do I know that? And what do I have to say that might be different from a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness Mm. or Muslim or, you know, what is different? So I went looking for answers to questions like, why do I believe God exists? Um, Why do I say Jesus rose from the dead or that I trust the Bible as reliable? Those kinds of things. And as I'm looking for answers to those questions, I actually stumbled into this field called apologetics, which I didn't know was a field. (laughs) I didn't even know it existed until I found books like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And that's when I started to see that this was a, like an actual field that people wrote in and have been writing in for a long time. What, if you could recall what year, what year was it that you came across The Case for Christ? I don't know the actual exact year, but I know it was early 2000s, single digits. Near, closer to 2000 than to 2010, like really close to 2000. I think I had read it in 2003 or 2004 when I was in high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right around that same time frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. Um, tell me about, um, last question before we head to a break here, um, and, and this could be a longer answer here. Uh, tell, <laughs> me, tell me about your relationship with a sociopath and an, and an ex-Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah, okay, so David and Nabil. <laughs> so, yeah, I met Nabil Qureshi while I was in school at Biola University because I had found a degree in apologetics which was going to help me answer all those questions that I was, you know, trying to find answers to. And Nabil started the same, he started close to the same time I did, but we both ended up in the summer program on campus together. Mm. So I met these two guys and, you know, (laughs) their personalities are as big as their height. (laughs) They're big personalities. So I, I got to know them at school, and I saw that they were doing debates, and I absolutely thought that was brilliant. I loved it, and asked them if I could do a, a debate review of one of David's upcoming debates. And yeah, they they said sure thing, and posted it on their blog, and ended up like 
just from me asking, hey, can I do a review? It ended up with them just sort of sucking me into their debate world. (laughs) And I ended up doing a bunch of ministry with them. And what's important about these two for me is there's two things that I'll say. One is that they really respected me for what I had to offer the kingdom of God. Hmm. And that was the first time I had encountered that, where, you know, I wasn't just a warm body in a church, just do whatever needs to be done. But these two guys went, wow, you're, you can really think through the arguments, and they really valued that. Um, so, so they put that, you to work. They put me to work. And then the other thing was that they showed me that I was being a bit selfish. Uh, I had a bit of a selfish heart. I kind of liked my own little haven the way I wanted to have it and didn't want that disrupted. Mm. And they were such public Christians, and they had sacrificed so much. And I had to struggle with, do I really want that in my life, to have that kind of target on my back? Yeah. And so they, they sort of showed me I was a little bit selfish at that point in my life um, with how I was doing my Christianity. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and of course, them having such big personalities, they they wouldn't mind at all telling that to someone, you know, <laughs> they thought that would be the case for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just, I really, I am very grateful to both Nabil Kreshi and to David Wood for helping me get out of my bubble and out of my comfort zone and pushing me into the things that, you know, God has gifted me to do. Yeah. Nice. Good. All right. Hey, we're going to take a break here. Uh, but when we come back, we've got some more questions about you, uh, your your walk, um, maybe some other stories uh, that you have to share and uh, your advice uh, going forward for um, for some folks. So um, and I do want to tell our listeners we've been off from uh, what's behind Kurt for a few weeks. And so we I'm looking forward to playing uh, that segment with uh, Chris and Mark after the break here. So stick with us through this short break from our sponsors. You're listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Evangelical Christians are talking about hell. What if we believe what we believe because we've always believed it? What if the gospel is really a matter of life and death? We want you to open your mind, open your Bible, and rethink hell. At RethinkingHell.com, evangelicals look at what the Bible says about hell, putting conventional and controversial views to the test. Let's say there's this Christian apologist. You love their message, but have trouble finding their videos, their articles, or social media posts. How do you stay connected to them? We're on it. Defenders Media uses the tools of the digital age to create content for your favorite apologists. We give them more screen time, more digital soapboxes, and more presence to deliver more of the content that you love. That's what we do. I know that social media is important to those of you who follow my work. Many respond to my videos and posts on Facebook and Twitter, but it becomes impossible after a while to keep up with it all and to continue with research. That's why I'm thrilled that we have found a solution, Defenders Media. Whether it's a website, whether it's printed material, whether it's a question on graphics, I cannot do what I do and reach my audience without the help of Defenders Media. They have been integral in helping me to reach my audience. Defenders Media ensures consistent content reaches your hand from today's leading apologists and apologetic ministries like Mike Lycona, Apologetics 315, the Veracity Hill Podcast with Kurt Jarris, and more. To learn more, text the word DEFENDERS to 555-888 and we'll send you a free PDF of the top five ways to share the gospel online. sponsors. If you'd like to learn how you can become a sponsor, you can go to our website, veracityhill.com, click on the Sponsor tab to learn more. A couple different options would be great to have you partner with us to advertise your organization, your business. Maybe it's a book that you've published. We'd love to help promote that on our program. Also, let me talk about Defenders Media, one of our sponsors and the uh, place where we produce the podcast. Uh, Defenders serves apologists and apologetic ministries by offering media services. Frequently, these apologists are scholars. They're too busy to 
to learn how to have a good-looking website or even to manage their social media outlet or to uh, really up their game with uh, Google ads and produce some great audiovisual content. So this is why Defenders Media has come along to provide those services uh, for them. So if you are an apologist and you're interested to uh, learn more, just get in touch with me. Email Kurt at DefendersMedia.com. I'd love to get the conversation going with you to see what your needs are, to see how we can help you. Uh, One of our goals uh, this year is to bring on a couple more clients, uh, and so we'd love to keep the the organization uh, going. Uh, and and growing as well. There's there's no harm to whether it uh, stops at at this point. Thankfully, we're in what is it, Chris? Year four of Defenders, I think. Yeah, year four. Year yeah. four into year five, something yeah. like that. Something like that. At any rate, so it's been a blessing to do this ministry work. In addition to the Veracity Hill podcast, uh, so we would love to. Um, uh, have the organization continue growing in what it's able to offer uh, to our ministry partners. Okay, well, um, I have been away for uh, a few weeks, and so I haven't had the chance to be in studio with the green screen, Uh, and so this is a fun segment that we started doing before the end of the year, and it's called What's Behind Kurt? Good man, Chris. Didn't skip that beat. Okay, so uh, the name of the game is What's Behind Kurt. Uh, I have no idea what's going to be placed on the screen. Viewers can see it. Um, If you're a listener on the podcast, I apologize. Go on over to our Facebook page or our YouTube channel where a video will be up. And uh, we've got something behind me, perhaps now-ish. I don't know what it is. Uh, I have 15 questions. Have you you turned off your feed? I've turned off the feed. Uh, I haven't haven't been... Yep, so I can't see whoever's commenting. Yep, no feed. Um, Now, we've realized that this segment has gone on for a long time, as in time-wise during the program. Mm. We're going to try something. So I'm not going to lose this week if the timer goes out. We're going to try a timer here to see how well this goes. We're aiming for three minutes. I don't know. Well, we're learning as we do these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to start the timer. Chris, are you ready? I am ready. Here we go, three minutes. Uh, is it a place? No. Is it a person? Yes. Is this a real person or a... Uh, well, only yes or no. Is it a real person as a not fiction? Yes. Is it a male? Yes. Man, I'm on a roll, kind of. Kind of. Kind of on a roll. Yeah. Uh, is this person alive today? No. Ooh. <laughs> Did this person ever live in the 20th century? Mm, yes. Yes. Mark thinks yes. No, Mark yes. confirmed. Mark, is Mark confirmed. confirmed. Okay, all right. I have the Wikipedia. I had no, I don't. Okay, no, I, I don't. I had to think. All right, yes. The answer is yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, was this person an American? Yes. What question are we on? Uh, seven. I've got two minutes to go. That's not pretty good so far. Seven of your 15. That's right, yeah. Only took one minute. Um, Is it a a politician? No. An athlete? Yes. All right. An athlete who has died, lived in the 20th century. I'm on my way. Uh, Baseball player? Yes. Oh, <laughs> we doggies. Five questions left. Five questions to go. It's a it's a baseball player that has passed away. Yes. Did this player play for the Yankees? Uh, no. Well, yeah, hold on, hold on, Mark. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. I'm looking at the Wikipedia. Page. <laughs> They're debating over the Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you ask that question one more time? Did the person play for the New York Yankees? No. Okay. Um, how many questions I've left? You have four questions left. Oh, gosh. Did this person... Oh, man. Did this person play for a Chicago team? Yes. Yes. Did this person play for the Cubs? Yes. Yes. Hold on, Mark. I've got two questions left. Trying to give some time. That's why. Is this person of Caucasian descent? Uh, yes. A 
Okay, so it's what? not so it's not Ernie Banks, right? Okay, so I've got one, one question. question. Okay, is it Ron Santo? No. Oh! <laughs> I don't think you would have gotten this. Uh, you would have gotten it. Well, I don't know. Uh, is it? Uh, Raleigh Three Fingers. No, yeah. he was. He's only on the. He only played on the Cubs one season, actually. Oh, one season. Yeah. It's. Uh, oh, there's your timer. There's the timer. It is, it is former Cubs player and manager. Uh, manager. Man. Man. Manager. Yeah. Uh, Don Zimmer. Oh, Don Zimmer. That would have been a hard one. Yeah. Uh, that yep. was a user submitted. Yeah. Entry. Nice. Great. Yeah. Well. Thank you, listener, for that submission. Very good one. I was close, but it would have been hard. I'm not. I'm you not were, sure. With you were in the in the ballpark, even with 20 oh. questions. Yes. Oh. Okay. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I see how it is. Okay. Well. Very good. Thank you, listener. Whoever that was. Can you say the first name, or was it uh, anonymous? Uh, it's not anonymous. I just need to find it. Ah. No worries. Two seconds. It's submitted by someone named James. James. Okay. Thank you, James. All right, uh, well, now we have moved to a segment that we call Rapid Questions. This is a third of the time that it takes. Oh, see what I did there? It's three minutes. That worked well. Uh, So, uh, Mary Jo, are you still with us? Yes. Okay, great. So this is a segment of the program we call Rapid Questions. And can can you confirm to the uh, audience that you you were not given information about this beforehand? (laughs) I was given no information, which is why I'm hopping. (laughs) Okay, great. So we're going to ask some fun, goofy questions, get to know you a little bit better. uh, And um, it's one minute on the clock. One minute. And so try to get through as many as you can, but, you know, we might revisit some after the the timer goes. (laughs) Have you ever had something like this for some of the interviews you've done or not yet? I've had one, but it wasn't rapid fire. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right. So if you're ready, I'm going to start the clock. All right. And here we go. Taco Bell or KFC? KFC. Uh, What's your clothing store of choice? Nordstrom. <laughs> What's your most hated sports franchise? Oh, I don't have one. <laughs> Are you a morning person or a night owl? Night owl. Uh, what's your favorite board game or card game? Card game. When you prepare to go on a trip, do you pack light or are you overprepared? Overprepared. Marvel or DC? Ooh. Oh, Marvel. <laughs> Uh, what TV show or movie do you refuse to watch? The Keeping Up with the Kardashians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> pick a fictional character you'd like to meet. Fictional character I'd like to meet. Um, ah, the, the gut Ransom from the trilogy, the space trilogy. Okay, what is your hidden talent? I'm a stunt kite flyer. Hey, I'm sorry, what? Stunt kite flyer. Stunt kite flyer. Well, okay, so the time has run out before I ask the clarifying question, but what is a stunt kite flyer? Like, are you like a stunt double for movies <laughs> where they're like gliding, hang gliding? I wish I were really that cool. No, you got to go to the nerdy side. I'm flying kites from the ground that are stunt kites. So they do all sorts of tricks and things. Oh, I had, I've never heard of this. <laughs> like I understand flying a kite like with little kids, you know, up in the yeah, wind. yeah. Hey. But there are people that do tricks with kites. Yeah, yeah. I used to like dive bomb my dad. I could take my kite way up high, and my dad's laying reading his Carl Sagan book. He's laying on the beach, and I could come within inches of him, just tag his nose with the tail of my kite. I mean, I'm a stunt kite flyer, so and I could do circles and figure eights and all dog fights and all sorts of stuff. I mean, not only have I learned something new about you, MJ, which is great, I've now learned about this whole little industry of stunt kite flying, so I feel like I've become a more well-rounded individual as a result of rapid questions today. (laughs) I really do. I think so. I think this is just quite an enlightened moment. I might have to sort of take that up, you know, become good at something, really. Uh, It's fun. It's really fun. (laughs) You got you had a PhD. There was nothing else in your scope. Yeah, that, that's else. right. Yeah. 
Okay, um, so let's get back to the conversation. We're uh, talking about uh, your journey, your faith journey, uh, out of atheism into Christian belief, but instead of a deconversion story, what you've offered to readers of your new book, Why I Still Believe, uh, is a testimony of intellectual faithfulness um, to uh, the Christian worldview. And I do want to say this, um, for listeners who uh, have stayed with us, we are giving away this book for free. Here's how you do it. Just share the Facebook video to your profile, and we will pick one winner from the folks that do that. Be sure to comment below uh, that you've shared it so we can confirm that it's you. Sometimes there are privacy settings, so we don't see everyone who shares it. Share it to your profile, comment below, and then uh, you will be entered to win this very book. And this one's mine, so I've got two. So thank you, compliments <laughs> of Zondervan. Uh, so hey, hey. We're, we're giving one book away here. Um, all right, so let's get back to talking about your journey here. Um, what you have done in your um, ministry, so you started with Confident Christianity, and then you became a professor of apologetics, if I have my chronology correct. Yeah. Um, your career as an apologist and a, and a professor is um, built upon um, helping others understand and share those arguments that support Christian the Christian worldview. Yeah. Um, but you yourself have seriously doubted the faith um, in a similar uh, – well, maybe not to the extent, but um, my friend Mike Lacona, uh, you know him. He's one of your uh, mm-hmm. colleagues there at HBU. He's also one of those uh, – what does he call it? A uh, – um, the eternal doubter or something like that. He's just, he doubts everything. Um, so how has that helped you? you? How have your doubts helped you in your career and your ministry work to help others who are, are experiencing doubt in their lives? Yeah, well, the first thing I think is that, you know, because my my background in atheism is that I... I don't really have like what we call the Christian bubble where I've only been around Christians and my whole life has been about Christian everything. So I'm not as, I hopefully am not (laughs) coming across as intimidated by or aggressive towards other, like atheists. Um, I say other atheists. I'm not an atheist, but people who are atheists. Because of my background, I remember what it was like thinking Christians are weird and thinking Christian doctrine was kind of out there. So like, what is this you all believe? I had that that thought in my life that I was the, the normative person in the world and that religion was sort of on the fringe, uh, whatever I thought that meant. But so I think that helps me not see atheists as them versus like an us. Mm. I, I just see them as other people and they're on their journey of discovering what's true. And so I think that really helps also having, having gone through doubt in my own life I think it helps me to understand that people do have those issues. They do have doubts and that it's okay to have that. It's doubt is not necessarily an enemy to the faith, but doubt can be a maturing process in the faith. It can help you go from sort of a youthful belief in authorities to more of a, I need to question the authorities. I need to question these things and make these beliefs my own. So do I really believe them? So I, I, tend to see doubt as more of a proper maturing mm. of a Christian faith. And I think that, I hope, I hope that would make me more empathetic towards people who are going through those times of doubt and help me to help them put words to what those doubts are and to find those answers so that I can come alongside people. So I think that was answering what you asked, but um, anyway, so I, th- I see both, like my, my doubt and my former atheism really, I, I believe, helped me help people through their own journeys. I really like what you said there about this sort of tribalism mentality, which many people can have. Um, and I think, frankly, it comes from a place of insecurity almost, um, when, when this tribalism gets brought to the fore because we are called to reach out to those people and to love them, not to yeah. think we're better than them and that uh, we, have, we have the right answers and they're wrong. And so we sort of alienate them from the loving that we're supposed to be doing uh, to them. So it, it's very um, in conflict with the teachings of Christ. So when we see yeah. when we see people there, we empathize with their situation. For you, it's because it was personal. 
uh, for many people like myself, I was raised in the Christian church. I don't have that experience, but I but I need to recognize um, that we are called to, to love folks, and when we set up this sort of tribalism, um, that you know, we are not called to um, prejudge folks, right? We yeah. should make strong moral evaluations. So I don't want to um, say that we should just approve what people are saying, but we we shouldn't be exactly. judging them and placing them in that group and then separating them from us. You know, uh, yeah. We need to be reaching yeah. out and loving them. That's that. That's that whole admonition about the log and the plank in your eye. You know, yeah. like the speck in somebody else's eye and the log or plank in your own. You, you know, we we all go through things. We all have our vices. We all have our periods of trouble and doubt and questions and I, I don't remember how exactly C.S. Lewis framed it but it was something about you know be kind to those who are in the hallway still because they haven't found their door right they haven't found their way mm. to what they're fine you know to what they're after looking for truth be kind to them because they're still on their journey and you were once there mm. so and even if you're not you don't have an atheist background you're still human you still share the same aspect of working through what it is you believe and working through the troubles in this life so we share we do have common human nature and common human experiences that we share so we should like you're saying be kind to one another and not get into tribalism mm. i like that word yeah yep uh there are many people who uh, lose their faith and they say that it's for these rational reasons x y and z you have sort of dealt with that thinking yourself but then you have thought maybe there's something else that's going on uh could you talk more about that yeah, that's sort of the going mantra of the day, isn't it? They, um, a person can't believe in God because of the rational reasons. It's intellectual suicide. If yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just all dry intellect. I'm, I'm totally objective. Which is why I, <laughs> I heard that so many times, especially on the internet. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you find out that they were beat by their dad when they were a kid, and you're just like, oh, you know. Yeah, it's, well, that's the thing. is, you know, When I began to doubt what I believed, I, I didn't have an emotional or intellectual depth to my faith to be able to aptly describe what was going on or what I was experiencing. So I naively believed that I could have something like purely and simply intellectual doubt about God. Uh, but beliefs are never formed in a vacuum like you're, you were alluding to there. You know, I can't be removed from myself and my experiences and my emotional memory to do a completely objective survey on my beliefs. That's not going to happen. And this this is going back to what Francis Bacon is talking about in the New Organon with the idols um, of the mind mm-hmm. and how it's very hard to get past those idols of education, your educational upbringing, your background, you know, um, or Plato's Cave, for those of you who are familiar with Plato's Cave. Yep. It's difficult to get beyond those. So um, I, I've come to realize that in the onset of my doubt that that, it did begin with a distrust of persons, that there was hurt, and there were experiences that were informing. There was some emotional doubt behind there. That pushed me into the intellectual questioning, for sure, but I had to remember that I had this distrust of persons. So God is a person, and you know, at the end of the day, I'm not just going to end up, if I, I'm not going to end up with propositional truth or a set of facts about God. Because it, God is a person, so at the end of the day, if I come to discover that he's real, what I'm looking at is relationship, and I have to determine, do I want that relationship? Is my desire to be in relation to a person? Because with people, there are obligations. With a set of facts, there are not. Mm. So I think there was a lot playing into my, um, my journey and my intellectual doubt. And how it was being fueled at disgust about what I saw in the church and the hypocrisy that I saw from believers. Mm. Uh, many atheists cite uh, the problem of evil and suffering as a uh, reason to disbelieve in God. Um, yeah. And of course, you and I are f- familiar with um, various intellectual defenses, uh, defense against the logical problem of evil and theodicies and, and, and whatnot. But for some people, it becomes very personal. Um, because they themselves have experienced the suffering. So how have you dealt with the problem of evil and suffering in your own life? Yeah, that, and that was what was hard for me. I actually described in the book where we're, I'm engaged in doing a debate review, and as I'm thinking through the atheist's question of, you know, like, hey, the problem of evil would all go away if there wasn't pain and suffering in the world. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Anytime I talk about, the issue of the problem of evil, it can come across as 
very uncaring and removed, you know. So this is where we get the ivory tower theologian thing. It's like we're not down there amongst the people caring and suffering with them because we sort of remove ourselves. You actually can't remove yourself from the pain and suffering that's in this world. So the experiential side of the problem of evil is always hard for us to deal with. Mm. No, no matter what I come up with, as far as theodicy, so for those who don't know, theodicy is that reconciliation of, you know, God's existence with the evil in the world, uh, because we say God is good, so that creates some dissonance for us. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I can come up and say, here's a theodicy, here's a, a defense um, of why this is the case, uh, a logical defense, and then the problem is I still can't answer why are you personally suffering, because I don't know. Mm. I don't have that answer, the side of resurrection. So that, for me, where, where this needs to go is that I think the church really needs to teach people about the problem of evil, the theoretical. They need to really examine, why do you believe God is good in a world full of evil? And what have you done in your, you know, in your thoughts about handling this? Because you are going to suffer. We need the theory there because eventually you're going to suffer. Somebody is going to die on you unexpectedly uh, and painfully so. Uh, somebody's going to suffer through a horrifying disease or situation, and you're going to try to make sense of that. And if you have nothing to draw on, if you have no theory, then there's no way you can put the theory into praxis. And for me, that was what I needed to have that background in. Why is there suffering in the world? Why does God allow evil? And is there an answer to it? Remember, as we're looking at different worldviews, as I'm thinking about stepping away from the Christian faith, you're walking into an atheist worldview, there's no answer to it. In fact, it may not even be right or wrong. It may not even be wrong that mm. they're suffering. Well, it, in fact, there's no good or evil at the base of the universe, then then this is just the way things are. Yep. Whereas in the Christian worldview, there's an agreement that this isn't the way things should be mm. and that there's an answer to that. And that answer has come and is coming. So there, there's a difference for me. You know, it's, this is a very powerful argument to look at, well, what do you really believe? And um, what is the answer to this for yourself and for others? Is, uh, is the problem of evil and suffering one of the most common objections you still hear? Um, you know, in talking to former, to current atheists and former atheists, or even, you know, Christians that are worried that, you know, what, what's the biggest objection maybe that they're worried about to the Christian worldview? Is it still evil and suffering? I still think it is in its various forms. I think it works its way into individual or particular circumstances or issues like hot topic issues in the world. Mm. But I still think at the base of it is this understanding of why is there evil in the world at all to begin with? You know, why, why didn't God make a world where there's no evil and there's no pain and suffering? And I think that's, that's at the base level of all these uh, questions. So, yep. yeah, I do. I do think it's the number one, even though there are others that creep up there and kind of bump on it. Right, right. Like uh, you've done some uh, uh, publishing on um, the copycat myth uh, idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some people say that, but uh, there's probably other motivations people may have for why they're raising that objection, which is yeah. just frankly an awful one. Ah, so much worse than problem of evils far and away a greater challenge <laughs> that's actually funny because when back in the early years of my ministry when i was doing a lot of online debate uh, and dialogue people would bring that one up to me and i was like oh man that one's so bad that <laughs> argument is so awful that i would suggest to you that you use the problem of evil against me <laughs> i've actually said that to people like i i you know i'm sorry you've been exposed to this on the internet and it, it, on surface value, like face value, it looks like it can have some merit. But as soon as you dig into it at all, it just blows up. So <laughs> the problem of evil, we've all been talking about for over 2,000 years. So let's do that one. Yeah. Give me give me a challenge. Let's take something hard. <laughs> yeah, actually. I mean, I don't mean that condescendingly, but I, it's true. The copycat theory is really... Yeah. Uh, I read about it in the book. It's just really uh, post hoc. It's very, um, it stays at the surface level. Once you dive into the theology or the philosophy of these different worldviews, the pagan worldviews versus what Christianity's um, coming out with in the first century, you, you see how very different mm. they are. And that if the Christians were even attempting to borrow from these pagan ideas, they like, missed everything. Yeah. They missed all of 
faith. Yep, that's right. Uh, <laughs> hey, so when you had a young faith, you had challenges with the church. You struggled to, um, you know, you wanted that good community, but you saw that there was a. Uh, um, some judgmentalness uh, from Christians, um, and you happen to be the wife of a pastor, uh, so uh, <laughs> which I'm sure you have short stories galore you could share about church life. Um, but do you still love the church? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great. That's such a great question, isn't it? Because you know, I, I, that's what I was struggling with as I was writing this book. I didn't want people to think I was just writing one of those deconversion stories where you trash the church. They're the cause. They're the problem. Uh, no, I I do still love the church. In short, it's I compare it to a marriage relationship. Mm. You know, there are days when you feel like you belong there. And then there are days when you wonder what in the world you were thinking. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, MJ. I, I, man. That's right, Kurt. That's right. You just keep that. Hold the line, man. <laughs> um, there, you know, with the church, there are days when I want to walk away and say, I don't need this. Mm. But I made a commitment. And not just to the Lord. I made a commitment to the people he died for. And... When Jesus in Luke 6 says, do unto others as you want others to do unto you, I have to think, how would I want others to treat me when I'm at my worst? And that's, you know, kind of going back to the marriage analogy is, would I want Roger when I'm at worst, my worst to just walk away from me and say, hey, I don't need this in my life. Uh, you're being ridiculous. You're being awful. Uh, and I'm sure there have been those days. <laughs> I'm sure. We're ministry couples. So, yeah. And no, I would want him to give me grace and I want him to look past my flaws mm. to see what could be there on the other side of those and let me work through it. And that's kind of how I'm engaging the church now is I continue to love her generally speaking because it's what I want from other Christians for me when I'm being my worst. Mm. Um, you know, there are, there are situations, Kurt, I don't want to overly broad brush this. There are situations that are... Um, where you need to leave. Like there are some really bad situations of abuse and things like that. I'm talking more about my experiences with the church as a pastor's wife in all the hurt and just amount of it over and over and over. Why would I still engage with this? Well, it's because Jesus died for her mm. and he tells me to do good even when I'm not going to have good returned to me. Right. That's his admonition. Not, yep. hey, only do good if you're going to get something in return that's good. He didn't say that because he knew us. He, oh, he knows us. And he knows that that's what's happening. And that's not just for people outside the church. That's intra-relationships inside the church. So my goal is to figure out how to more thoughtfully engage with her, mm. uh, with a better understanding of what human beings are and the fallen status of mankind. Um, so I'm still working on it, but... I love her. I do. Yeah, that's that's a good way of phrasing it. I like I like your answer. I, I can think of Paul and Barnabas, uh, you know, parted ways uh, over ministry efforts, uh, a disagreement of some sorts. We don't know exactly what, um, yeah. but there was that timing where they decided, okay, it's better for the church if we separate. Um, so I'd be interested to learn about what that disagreement was someday. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Me too. <laughs> MJ. Mary Jo Sharp, thank you so much for joining us on our program today. Uh, we are going to be sure to put a link at our website to Why I Still Believe, a former atheist's reckoning with the bad reputation Christians give a good God, uh, put out by Zondervan. And if you want to win this very copy, um, or maybe this copy, um, this copy, uh, please share our video, share our interview with Mary Jo. If you share the video, comment in the thread uh, here on Facebook, and uh, that will enter you to win this very copy of this book full of wonderful stories, um, a, a powerful testimony of intellectual faithfulness uh, to the Christian worldview and to God's people as well, because that's that's a part of the journey for all of us. Uh, and um, MJ, if people want to learn more, uh, they go to, is it confidentchristianity.com, is that right? 
We have recently updated it, so you go to MaryJoSharp.com. Ah, okay, MaryJoSharp.com. You can find various sorts of resources, I'm sure videos, articles. You can learn more about her very good ministry work. So thank you for the efforts you've been doing uh, as someone who's a co-laborer in this same field. Um, I know those challenges that present themselves. So thank you for your diligent work uh, in the apologetic enterprise. Uh, thank you, Kurt. I hope, uh, well, congratulations on your PhD, and I hope you explore stunt kite playing in the future. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. God bless you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, that does it for our show today. I'm grateful for the continued support of our patrons. Those are folks that just ship in a few bucks each month, 5 10 or $20 or more. If this program has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming one of our financial supporters uh, to help this program continue to go and grow. And I'm also thankful for the partnerships with our sponsors. They are Defenders Media, Consult Kevin, The Sky Floor, Rethinking Hell, The Illinois Family Institute, and Fox Restoration. Thank you to our technical producer, Chris, for all the fine work that he does week in, week out. For Mark, our uh, communications associate, for all the good work that he does as well. And to our guest today, Mary Jo Sharp. Last, and certainly not least, I want to thank you for listening in and for striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. You've been listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. This is a listener-supported program. For more resources, including past shows, visit veracityhill.com. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.